Okay, welcome back everyone to the third and final Script Apart Storyteller session. My name's Al Horner, and if you're tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast normally about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. Each episode usually involves an amazing filmmaker breaking down their first draft of a beloved screenplay, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why en route to the big screen. This weekend, though, we've been bringing you career-spanning conversations with game-changing storytellers, one a day, exploring their relationship with the page and some of the most unique aspects of their work. 100% of proceeds are going to the Entertainment Community Fund, a brilliant charity. So before I go any further, let me just say, if you enjoy this episode and can afford to do so, please do consider hitting the link in today's show notes and donating to that great cause. Today's episode sees us talk with an author, screenwriter, and showrunner who delights in writing what she calls bad women, fascinatingly flawed female characters who she grants the freedom to kill, lie, harm, and harass in a way that sometimes ruffles feathers. Take her 2012 novel Gone Girl, for example, which she later adapted into a smash hit movie with David Fincher. That murder mystery tale of a marriage steeped in deceit captivated the world and sparked near endless conversation about the poison and or empowerment of its main character, Amy Dunn. Gone Girl made my guest today not just a literary darling, but also catapulted her to the summit of film and TV. In 2018, she co-wrote the brilliant Widows with Steve McQueen and adapted her first novel, Sharp Objects, into a fantastically slow-burning limited series starring Amy Adams. Since then, she's won cult acclaim for her streaming adaptation of Utopia. Yes, you guessed it, it's the remarkable Gillian Flynn. In the conversation you're about to hear, I ask Gillian how she pens her captivating characters and the social importance of allowing women to run riot on screen and in her novels, the way that male anti-heroes are frequently permitted to do. She reflects on the accusations of misogyny that her work attracted from some female writers in the aftermath of Gone Girl, reveals an alternate ending to that story that would have taken the tale of Nick and Amy Dunn in a very different direction, let me tell you, and makes a case for breaking all the rules when it comes to story structure. Again, this conversation is in aid of the Entertainment Community Fund who do extraordinary work lifting up storytellers of all descriptions. They've been a vital support for entertainment industry workers affected by this summer's strikes. So if you enjoy this episode, please do consider clicking the link in today's show notes and donating any amount you can spare to this great cause. Okay, with that out the way, let's get right into it. This is the brilliant Gillian Flynn's Script Apart Storyteller Session in aid of the Entertainment Community Fund. A massive thanks to Gillian and a huge thanks to you guys for tuning in. This weekend has been an absolute blast. We can't thank you enough for your support. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming next week. Until then, you're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Gillian, so great to meet you. Thank you so much for being with us. How are you doing today? And uh, yeah, where, where am I reaching you? Is this your writing room that I'm seeing you in? The place where the magic happens? I am doing great. And this is indeed my writing office. Uh, when I wrote my other, my first three books, I was in 
a tiny Victorian house in an unfinished basement, basically. And it was freezing in the (laughs) Chicago winters. And so I swore um, that I would actually be comfortable for the, my writing from then on. So I've got a nice stir. It feels sturdy now, stays warm in the winter. (laughs) I was going to say it looks pretty cozy. Speaking of uh, potentially freezing cold places, um, to go back to the beginning of of your relationship with writing, Gillian, like I understand that in third grade, you wrote your, your first ever short story, um, about a, a one-room cabin that your family owned in Southern Missouri. And this short story was called To the Outhouse. I'm yes. told that this, uh, this, this cabin kind of scared you. Um, but so, so you wrote about it. And that was the start of your journey into writing. Can you tell me about uh, yeah, what you remember of that story, Gillian, and the, and the thrill of having written it, the feeling of, of getting it down on the page? I was in third grade and I already wanted to be a writer. And... We did have a one room cabin. Um, so we all slept kind of in one room and it didn't have it didn't have plumbing, it didn't have electricity, all that. So um there was an outhouse and I was always scared to death to run to the outhouse in the middle of the night because you know you're a kid in the woods. But I channeled that fear as I gen- generally do into writing. And so I wrote a little pioneer girl and she gets to that house and she's surrounded by wolves. And so she spins the short story going like, you know, I need to get back to my family and they'll miss me. And how can I out, you know, out fox these wolves for lack of a better metaphor. Um, And at the end of the story, she bursts forth from the outhouse and gets a few feet and then is immediately savagely torn apart by the wolves (laughs) at the end. (laughs) A happy ending. Oh, Um, yes. It was dark dark even at, at nine years old. It is interesting, though, hearing you talk about leveraging something you feared into a story at that early age, because, well, my relationship with your stories, both on the page and on screen, I've noticed is kind of predicated often on some sort of deep lying fear. So there's the notion that you can never really know someone in Gone Girl, like not even your marital partner. Uh, in, in Sharp Objects, there's this suggestion that there are some traumas you, you can't outrun or leave behind. Do you think in, in a way you're still writing about that cabin in some sense, that you're you're still using fiction the way you did then to gain a certain power over or an understanding of the things you're afraid of? Only now, of course, that the things you're fearful of are more existential than a spooky cabin. I think definitely. Um, There's this old cliche that I do find true, which is most thriller and um, horror writers, if you meet, they'll be very nice people because they get the demons out and you just have to watch out for the romance writers. (laughs) They don't. Um, But I definitely use, I use a lot of my fears, a lot of my angst, um, my stuff isn't autobiographical, but it is filled with those same doubts and worries and, you know, regrets, you know, and, uh, and uh, for Gone Girl, I had just been laid off from my job and I had no job. I had been working at a magazine and I was freaking out because I'd never not had a job from like when I was 15 years old, I'd always had a job and I didn't even understand 
what to do with myself. And so I channeled all that angst into the character of Nick, who is a laid off you know, writer from New York, who uh, is really from Missouri and has a chip on his shoulder about about that. And um, I, I put so much of my, all my angst at the time into his character. I can imagine. Um, I, I want to come back to Nick Dunn and Gone Girl, but first let me ask you this. I, I know in those years, the literature that was helping shape you as a storyteller, I know how Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None completely changed your life. It, uh, you credit that book as being the story that made you realize that audiences can be entranced by bad characters, as you've called them. Uh, that book, by the sounds of things, also put you on a path to writing mysteries. I'm curious, though, if there were films as well as novels that were, were that were kind of molding you around this time, the way that Christie and other authors were starting to exert an influence. I mean, absolutely. My dad was a film professor, and so he would take me to movies. That's what we did. As our father-daughter date was at least once a week, we'd go to the movies, and I saw you name a film um, in the eighties and I would probably be like, yep, saw that one too. Yep. That that was a Tuesday in July. Um, And, you know, I have certain, you know, very specific memories of, you know, seeing alien in the theater when I was about six, which was perhaps an ill-advised call, but six um, and just, yeah. And just love it. I I totally remember my dad going like, Gilly, like you should see this movie because it has what's called a heroine. Do you know what a heroine is? It's a female <laughs> hero. And that's going to be very, that's very good for you to see that up on screen. And I, you know, I'm like, okay, great. And then it gets there and it's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like it's got a heroine, but it also is a horrifying alien that's killing everyone. Uh, but certain moods like that, I got very interested i loved hitchcock too and i like the i like the art of building suspense um for me but like building that sense of unease where the the viewer has to go there wants to go there but at the same time is inclined not to go back there because they know this is only going to lead to something you know, really bad. Like I remember seeing Manhunter and then Silence of the Lambs, you know, both in theaters and talk about movies that just make you like crawl out of your own skin, but you can't stop watching. And and during those trips to the cinema with your dad, Gillian, did it occur to you even then that you'd, you'd one day like to tell stories on that canvas or uh, did the impulse to, to be a filmmaker, to be a screenwriter, did, did that hit you later on after you'd kind of conquered being being a novelist? No, I mean, so I always thought it'd be amazing to be a screenwriter. I thought that was just the coolest um, idea. Um, that said, when I was growing up, there weren't a lot of female screenwriters. I mean, they're just really, you have to, you know, you kind of have to see it to be it, as they say. Mm-hmm. And like, there was, there was not a lot of times you'd see a woman's, name up there but I was always very interested and I was the kind of nerdy kid who back before the internet would mail away my six dollars to get a screenplay so I could read it (laughs) so I was really really um grew up really ensconced in that world and really loved it and so when Gone Girl sold um and was doing well and the studios were 
calling, you know, I said, my one thing is I want in my contract that I can write the screenplay. Like, you know, they only give you generally the first draft of the screenplay and then they fire you and pick someone who knows what (laughs) (laughs) that they know can deliver and is a little less uh, green than I was, but um, I was lucky to see it all the way through. And when we talk about the sort of defining traits of your work, Gillian, um, I mentioned already, like the, these characters who are bad people. It's so fascinating. It, it, it runs like it runs through your work, both on the page and on the screen, and even in the stories that you you've you've gravitated towards as something to adapt, as was the case in Utopia. Can you tell me about like coming to the realization that there's something more valuable, more gripping, and and perhaps even more real about writing characters who who kind of make bad decisions? They have malfunctioning moral compasses instead of kind of prioritizing likability, whatever that word means. I, a couple answers to that question, which is I have a, I have a real soft spot for people who can't get out of their own way, you know, who, who aren't necessarily, you know, pure evil, but who just like consistently screw things up. And you're just like, why can't you just not screw this thing up? Um, <laughs> And taking that and, you know, multiplying that by uh, obviously a large number to create these people, but those, you know, inexorable sense of that they're going to do something that's not right. And then whether that's, um, you know, the killer in my second book, Dark Places, whether that's um, the main character that Amy Adams played in Sharp Objects, who, you know, drinks and has you know wildly inappropriate sexual relationships and this and she just can't break that cycle she knows she shouldn't but she can't break it and I my motto has always been I don't care if they're likable as long as they're interesting to me we've been using this what this code word of likable as if that encompasses everything an audience wants to see. And I think we've proven that that is absolutely not correct. And the fact that I was still making my case, I mean, Sharp Objects um, was published in, you know, 2007, 2008, and no one wanted it because everyone said like, you know, this person isn't very likable and women want a character that they can root for and feel like they want to be like. And I'm like, I think that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's nice to have that finally confirmed. I mean, seeing, having a nice group of interesting female characters, because I always feel it's pretty sexist to say women can only be the help mate, the, the mom, the keeper of all the good of the family. Um, because you know, women are, some women are bad just like men, (laughs) like (laughs) who'd have thought You used the word interesting a couple of times there. How do you hit that threshold with a character? Is there a kind of process you have to ensure that they they meet that criteria of being interesting, of having that depth, of, of having those kind of inner conflicts and contradictions that, that makes them as gripping to watch as an Amy Dunn or as gripping to read about as, as Camille Preka, these kind of characters. I, I love all their kind of flaws, their frustrations and their bouts of suppressed rage. I'd love to hear like how you go about sort of uh, constructing all that. You know, it's interesting. I am not someone who outlines. 
I might sometimes have a vague sense of where I want a midpoint to be. Like, I hope I, you know, I kind of think I'll go to here and maybe the end is, is this, but that's even murkier. And, you know, I like, cause I like, this sounds very authory, but I like to let the characters kind of take over a little bit and, and start showing me what, you know, they surprise me sometimes. And it's like, Oh, like, you know, I, I didn't know Amy done like Burt Backrat or I don't know, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever that may be like those surprise moments. And in the same way, when I'm constructing characters, I never ever go, will a reader or a, an audience member like this character? I never think that I never think are they doing enough things that make them interesting? Because I feel like you can get to hokiness very quickly that way. You know, if you have like, if you give, if you give your, your person a quirk and it's, you know, and it's sort of like, <laughs> Oh, I know what that was. And that was you just thinking, are, are they interesting enough? And I'm going to add this weird thing where he likes strawberry quick milk or something to drink <laughs> at, at midnight. Like that's a, like, I'm not. Uh. So I write, from that, you know, my my books, uh, my books are, are very much within the a narrator's head. And then the exchange has been when I'm making those into films or TV, how to externalize that in ways that work, um, which is its own other tricky thing. But as as far as uh, you know, I don't have a checklist. I don't. I I write. I write what I'd like to read is really what I do. And if if I get there and I'm like, hey, like I'd read this book, then I feel like that's the best you can kind of hope for. Like, hey, I'd watch, I'd watch this movie. Like, I'd really dig this movie. And that's, you know, the business is so bizarro and there's so many things that can affect the output, how many people, how many people sees it, see it, you know, that sort of thing that all you can really fall back on that's going to make you sane is like, well, I would. I would have watched the the heck out of that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Sharp Objects was your first novel. You wrote it while working at Entertainment Weekly. I'm really intrigued by the ways in which that background in journalism must have helped you. Like, w was profile writing a good apprenticeship for the type of storytelling you do now in that it taught you how to take a subject and drill into their psychology Talk me through the, uh, the the storytelling tools, I suppose, that journalism equipped you with that, that came in pretty handy when you sat down to write Sharp Objects. So I was at Entertainment Weekly for 10 years total. And I wrote my first two books just nights and weekends while I had that day job. And I spent the first five years doing profiles and production stories on, on films. And I spent the last five years as a critic there. And they booked they both helped in really interesting ways. I think one of the biggest ways they helped is developing that almost the muscle memory of creativity, that idea, you know, you work at a, a, a weekly magazine and you're not going to have any mythologizing about the, I, I can't write. The muse <laughs> is not coming to me today. No, yeah. I'm sorry. You have to sit down and write. I mean, it's, you, you don't have an option. So it, it really, has taught me that skill of sit down, stop screwing around, act like this is, you know, this is a deadline day and, and work. And it's taught me to not be overly protective of what I write because often at a weekly 
you know, you'd lose an ad page. So then suddenly your 2000 word beautiful tone poem um, is, you know, it's 500 words and you just have to slice and dice and get down and then remake it. So it doesn't feel like a Frankenstein sort of situation. And, um, and so it's taught me to, and with being a critic too, it's taught me to look through what I'm writing and going like this, none of this works. Like I'm going to, chop the last 50 pages off and just delete it. I generally don't try to try to make it work elsewhere for the most part, because it usually sticks out badly because it doesn't belong in that book. And so it really taught me to do that. And being a critic, certainly um, it really made me think about why, why things, if, why things worked, certainly, but also why they didn't quite work, which I think is a great skill to, you know, you know, the stuff that's absolute junk, that's like a F plus or a D, a D minus. And you know, the stuff that's amazing. And it's just like, oh my God, it's, you know, it's the wire. It's an A, it's a perfect show. But it was always interesting seeing the ones that where you thought like, this is an absolute average C grade show i wonder why and trying to parse that and figure that out i think was really helpful to me as i sit down and critique my own stuff by the same token though were there things you had to unlearn from your journalistic past to help make you the fiction writer that you are today i mean like i know for example that there are parts of my brain that i have to shut down when i write a screenplay because they're almost kind of too conscious of the discourse that you're plugged into as a journalist, if you like. There's uh, there's an analytical part of my brain when I'm in journalism mode that is not useful in my fiction writing, I've discovered. So yeah, was that the case for you? Were there some things you had to sort of learn to leave behind from, from your past as, as a journalist? I think the main thing that I had to unravel was the tone because ew at that time had a very tonal voice and it was very voicey it's quite colorful right yeah yeah like humor like humor occasionally snarky um word a lot of wordplay we never backed away from a pun if we liked it you know that it was a blast <laughs> to work there um but it wasn't certainly wasn't sharp objects uh so i would have to get home from all day writing this kind of more bantery um, lighter stuff and then get into the world of sharp objects. And if you, it's interesting, if you look at sharp objects in particular, I think there's one reference in there to anything pop culture. I mean, cause I was sort of like, I don't want this littered with all my you know because all we do is pop culture references like my best friends and i and they're still my best friends from that time period well that's what we talk about is like pop, what we're into and everything and i was like that's a very dangerous place to be so it almost feels like a time out of time place there's no cell phones there's no there's, <laughs> like i didn't want to get into any of that because i just wanted to i wanted to make sure that that voice felt very different yeah I'd read the version of short of sharp objects in the entertainment weekly bouncy tone of voice. <laughs> um, a few a few puns in there. Uh, can't yeah. go less. Um, it, even in that, even at that kind of seemingly early point in your your fiction writing career, there was such like vivid imagery 
to your work. Like the teeth in the dollhouse in Sharp Objects, for example, is so chilling because like it's something so violent housed in something so innocent. Like uh, uh, like the juxtaposition yeah. there is so powerful. Same kind of applies with uh, with Gone Girl. Like I, I love the Punch and Judy puppets and the kind of baggage of domestic abuse that they bring with them to that story. Not to mention like the idea of puppetry, characters being pulled around on strings. That's obviously very applicable. Can you talk to me about finding those kind of little visual devices that you tend to use, Gillian? Like, do, do they come fairly naturally in the writing process for you, or do you have to search around for them? I do a fair amount of searching as far as the really specific granular details. So when I'm writing a scene, um, I'm asking myself, like, how does it smell in this room? This person walked in, like, uh, you know, as like, does there old egg salad in the trash can? Is this the kind of character <laughs> that would have, old, you know, like what, what are those different um, kind of moments that, that I can bring to it that really some strange detail a poster on the wall or something like that. Like you say with Gone Girl, I like the, the puppetry. I like that idea. I liked that feeling that the marriage is over and Nick, Ben's character, feels like he's come to the end of things. Where it's like, I'm a journalist and there's no newspapers. And, you know, there's no, what am I going to do? And that he comes to this town and it's a place where the they used to make the blue book test copies for essays in college. And they're like, but we don't use them anymore because everyone has laptops. And there's all these guys that they call the blue book, po the blue book boys who are now without all their job skills and are kind of ro roaming menacingly around town. And so to have that in there, because I did want that sensation of things coming to an end that wherever, whatever they were looking at, um, you know, that, that felt like the end of an era, the way it does when a marriage is dying. Well, I'm so glad that we're talking about Gone Girl because uh, th that was my introduction to your work. And it was after that that I explored everything else that you'd written, Gillian. And um, I, I think that sounds like it was, uh, you know, that that's something a lot of our listeners, I'm, I'm sure that will have been their trajectory with your work as well. Yeah. That the book and then latterly the film did rocket you to to new places in your career. Um, as, as you mentioned, you wrote the screenplay for, for Finch's movie adaptation when you look back on that story now, which which so many people love so deeply in both its forms, what kind of reflections do you have on why it touched the cultural nerve that it did? Because it really did seem to, as a story, find itself in, in the middle of this moment societally. It is interesting. And I have asked myself that question because I'd like there to be some sort of clue about what a genius I am. And then that's why <laughs> it's so well. <laughs> I do think one must acknowledge that it, some books are lightning in a bottle. You know, some movies are lightning in a bottle and they're, they're good and they just, they do ignite, you know, certain passions. I do think that having a book told by both a male and female narrator who are married, um, not that that has not been done before, but they're both, they're both in first person. So they're both each very personal and they're both storytellers. So they're each trying to spin you. And yeah. I think in this age of, you know, it was right when the 
you know, book and, and movie came out was when social media was really kind of becoming its own creature and that idea of all these false identities and who, how do you believe what's behind any sort of surface? And also the, you know, it was right at the rise of the, you know, true crime industrial complex that we're all, you know, so obsessed with that, you know, so many movies and TV shows and podcasts are dedicated to that. And that she knew all the different tropes and you realize, you know, you've been played too. So I, I, you know, I think there's, I think people kind of resonated to that, that idea that you're hearing kind of from both sides and um, as in any wreckage of a marriage, you know, each one's right, each one's wrong. And you're, you're going to have to put together the clues, but I felt that, I mean, I get people come up to me at a reading or whatever and, you know, like I'm team Nick, like I'm team Amy and everyone's always known an Amy. Like I get so many stories. About, Let me tell you, my roommate in college was such an Amy. Let me tell you, my ex-wife was such an Amy, like such a, so um, perhaps that one uh, cut, cut a little close. Uh, and certainly the fact that there's the, you know, the cool girl monologue that people uh, really seem to really respond to the number of times that I've seen that in different memes and, and brought about. Um, I'm really glad I kept it in because I almost cut it out. So oh, really, <laughs> I didn't, when I wrote it, um, it was a, it was a writing exercise actually, because when I get writer's block, I don't let myself stop with stop writing. I just do it from a different angle so I can kind of learn more about the characters and maybe that will help me figure out what I'm going to do. And so it was back when Amy was also a magazine writer. She was a female, like feminist column sort of writer. So I was like, just write an essay from Amy's point of view and we'll like kind of see about that. And then she, I changed her job multiple, one of many times I changed her job. Um, And you know, I was like, it's a writing exercise. I can't keep it in the book. I can't keep it. So I would take it out and then I'd be like, God, but I really like it. Then I put it back in. And so, but I'm really thankful because I think it has, uh, it really chimed with a lot of people. That's so interesting. Was there a particular point in, in the writing of it when you realized you were onto something or did you know instinctively from the very beginning? No, neither. Yeah. Neither. We really you know, Sharp Objects had done well enough to get me my second book contract and that had done a little bit better and got me a third book contract. Um, But I really was sort of like, well, I'm going to have to find a day job and, you know, I'll I'll be lucky and get to keep this, uh, you know, write books on the side, but I'm, you know, I got to get a job. And um, so we really were not, nobody was expecting it. It really was a, a, a shock and it turned turned into a never ending book tour. I was all over the place and I was also writing the screenplay for Gone Girl. Um, because that happened almost, I mean, within within months. And I was uh, writing the script and I I still remember I was coming back from a library event in Kalamazoo, Michigan on the way back to Chicago when I typed the end, you know, and finished it, <laughs> had a glass of really bad, warm train wine. And <laughs> I was like, I think this is pretty good. I kind of like the screenplay. Wow. So it's interesting. My recollection of it was, you know, 
anecdotally, like among friends, everyone had an opinion on it, like uh, on a kind of broader level in terms of like the media, like everyone was extrapolating from this story of yours through the lens of like, you know, me too being on the horizon, like a, a kind of openly misogynistic American presidential candidate kind of starting to step into political view. Uh, this new wave of feminism springing onto into life, like uh, mostly online, it must have been quite an adjustment. Um, just experience being at the epicenter of all that noise, Gillian. Like, what what was it like for you? It was, it was wild. I mean, it really was like being kind of strapped to a rocket and just being shot through all these different opinions and tastes and. Um, a lot of conversation about whether I was a misogynist, a lot of conversation about that, which I I was always mildly baffled by just because I've always said, like, let's sort apart. Like, you do know that Amy is a bad person, right? So she's going to probably pull like she's if she's going to play someone, she's going to go all the way and, you know, do what she does. And um, I if, if I were creating like a really, you know, if, if it were Nick's sister go doing that, like that'd be weird. That would be problematic. And I might be saying something different than what you think, but these are bad people doing bad things. And like I said before, it's, you know, women sometimes do bad things. There are sometimes awful women out there just the way there are good ones. And so, but to be blasted like that was, interesting it was i didn't take it i was lucky i think again one of those things that was lucky about working at entertainment weekly and being a critic especially was you know it's just one person who's like having their tuna salad sandwich and typing up their <laughs> you know what what they think and, and you realize it's not this monolithic hate against you it's you know it's just different people and i would so much rather people hate my book or hate my movie then go, you know, like, Oh, you know, this is okay. You know, I liked it and never think about it again. Cause if they hate it, that means they've really thought about it. I mean, I prefer that they love it, but if they hate it, it means they've it's gotten under their skin in some way and that they've, they've been talking about it. And that's always what any author or screenwriter wants is that people talk and debate about what they're writing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it didn't sting too much. It's uh, it's funny though. Like, you know, I, I I regard you to be someone who works quite hard to tell stories about women and all their complexity, in uh, tales that break women out of the boxes that they've had to exist in across film and literature for the most part. Um, you're also committed to lifting up other female writers. Like, you you have an imprint with the book publisher Zando on which you're, you're putting out all sorts of great female authors. I'm, I'm actually wake, working my way through the center at the minute, which is so good. Um, the suggestion of misogyny is quite, quite strange because, uh, I don't know, for me, admittedly, as uh, you know, a man, it's a, it's a greater misogyny, seemingly, to, to limit women in novels and on screen to being morally wholesome characters. You know, the, the whole debate reminds me of like a really beautiful chapter in Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dream House, which is, you know, a memoir about lesbian domestic abuse in which she explicitly states her hesitancy around admitting that that women in same-sex relationships can be abusive. 
because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing her really badly. I'm so sorry, Carmen. But uh, yeah, the, the point she's making is that it risks feeding harmful views of her community. She ultimately decides, though, that the LGBTQ plus community doesn't have true freedom, the same freedom that straight cisgender people have, until stories can be told in which LGBTQ plus people exist who are selfish and do cause harm and are mean and are, well, bad, I suppose, for, for a lack of a better phrase. D- does that resonate with you in terms of what you're trying to do in your work with these quote-unquote bad female characters? Oh, absolutely. I mean, 100%. Because I don't, I don't think you we're viewed as the other a lot of times, you know, like that person, you know, women who aren't entirely known. And, and then, you know, there's a lot of this go girl, boss girl (laughs) sort of stuff. And I was like, I hope at some point really soon we stop doing that. And it's just boss, you know, I'm I'm just (laughs) boss. And for me, it's that same um, signal and problem if we, you know, like I said, if we're only seeing women who, you know, like the sexy scientist is on the scene and like just <laughs> going to solve this problem or, you know, just just regular women who are allowed their entire full range of human emotion and good deeds and, and bad deeds. And I think that that's it, it truly is important because until then, you're not a person. You know, you're not being seen as a person. You're being seen as a type. And until we're able to have that um, and allow that vast array of emotion, you know, I always joke, you know, how many, how many books are, how many have you read in your life about a, an anti-hero, like the anti-hero, the anti-hero. It's like, I'm, I'm just, I want there to be a, the ability to be a female anti-hero and have that be just an interesting person that we're reading about, you know, instead of like this misogynist villain. You know? <laughs> yeah, we haven't been able to move for for male anti-heroes on, on TV, especially Don Draper, Walter White, all yeah. those types of characters. Um, I, I'd love to talk to you briefly about structure. Like um, Gone Girl did something really interesting that the kind of the, the midpoint twist of, of yeah. that story goes very much against the grain. You, you think you're reading this murder mystery and you expect the grand reveal to be at the end. But instead, you know, the second half of that book becomes like a, a complex chess match, really. Like the mystery has been solved. And now we're seeing these these two players attempt to outwit the other. What did you learn from the experience of cracking the structure of that book? And, and of course, latterly the film about the, the importance of breaking the rules sometimes, because, you know, that there are so many things structurally and otherwise that Gone Girl is doing that would have had, you know, Sid Field and Blake Snyder and all these other kind of screenwriting experts uh, breaking out in hives, I imagine. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, did not do the 20 minutes in, this happens, 30 minutes in, this has to happen. Yeah. Um, I, when I was writing it, it was, there was no diary at first. There was no Amy's diary. It was all from Nick's point of view. And you actually didn't find out what had happened. It was building suspense that he had probably done something. And at the end, it was a big revelation. And I was writing toward that. And I thought, 
this is a really interesting woman who's going to go to these links to do this. I'd like to hear from her. And then I kind of got into, you know, writing that, that diary, that, that diabolical diary and just, you know, I just felt like that was the right place. Cause I did tonally want to shift from, a, you know, scenes of scenes of a marriage to a much more cat and mouse sort of game where the two of them are playing and keep that um, keep that movement happening. And so it just felt like the correct place for it. But it was so funny. My publisher, when I handed it uh, over, said, OK, just a couple questions. You've written a mystery where you find out who done it. And but the middle of it is told by two narrators that no one's probably going to like that much. And you have an ending that isn't tied up in a bow and, you know, about all about justice and, you know, comeuppance and everything. It's very open-ended. And she, she's like, do you know that? And I said, that is exactly what I was trying to do. And they were great about it after that. And, you know, getting to work with Fincher was such a dream because he loved that structure. He wasn't going to, he had no, he had no interest in make making me try to fix it into neat little thirds. He had no interest in that, which was wonderful. I know, uh, you know, your, your first draft of sharp objects, for example, the killer was the cheerleader. Was there at any point, like in, in the kind of early drafts of uh, Gone Girl, was there ever a, a less ambiguous ending or an ending that's that kind of like serviced an obligation that we think we have as storytellers towards justice. There was, I mean, I, I tried a lot of different endings for that to, cause I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to happen once Amy got returned to the house and, and what that ending was going to look like. And I had, one whole ending I wrote through that was about the two Ozark grifters, the ones who take all her money and that they've seen her in the news and have shown up to bribe her to keep her secret. And I, and I think she was going to go to jail if I remember correctly, but I mean, I didn't write through the whole thing because I just thought Amy's not going to end up in jail. She's amazing Amy. Like, so there's no way, like, I want this person in a box. That doesn't feel right to me. She's going to, you know, she's going to manipulate her way out of it. She's going to, I mean, it'd be a whole nother book to see what that court case would look like. That would be very, very fun to see her manipulate public opinion, but it wasn't this book. Uh, but I did, did try to think of like, is there some sort of justice? And then I just came up, as I was writing, came upon, you know, Nick saying, we are each other's foil, you know, like, I need her to be the kind of man that I know I can be like when I was like being when I was with her, I was much better than I am without not like is that fun I don't think so is that you know and it was you know but it's sort of like it turns out I actually literally need a gun to my head in order to be the kind of person I want to be so I just like the I like the idea of it lets your imagination go like where what is going to happen to these people in five years who something because something's going to happen yeah well I love how the ending that you you arrived at like it it kind of services theme like so beautifully. Like if we are to say that the film, well, the book and the film are 
about the kind of performance of of a marriage and the way, yeah, as I said at the top of this, sometimes there's a limit to how much you can really know someone, even even your partner. Yeah. The ending feels so it clings to that so neatly and so beautifully. How how led are you by theme? Are you conscious of the themes you're trying trying to express when you when you're writing, or do you kind of work instinctively and allow and kind of knit the two at a later point? I'm very conscious of the themes. I mean, I would say character and themes are how I kick off everything I do. You know, there's usually one character that is, is in my head who's going to be the narrator who I really am thinking about a lot. But there's, you know, the reason I write mysteries is because it's such a great way to talk about larger themes and but have it move you know attach it to that engine that's going to pull you through and you can talk about you know everything from you know serve objects was me trying to figure out what female violence looked like and generational female violence because you know about every third book is about male violence or generational (laughs) violence or uh, you know and i was at the time i was just like there are no i i can't find the these stories that i like to read and so you know, it was starting with that theme and then working through it from there, you know, kind of setting up this strange matriarchal society in the woods where children are dying, like, you know. Um, and my second book is very much about poverty and what the grind of what that can do to you is. And um, my beloved love of the satanic panic that grips the 1980s and has such echoes right now with QAnon and those type of, you know, where you go down the rabbit hole on the internet. Um, And then Gone Girl, I was getting married when I wrote it. And so I was thinking a lot about marriage. And I mean, I remember my husband's like, is everything okay? (laughs) It seems like, um, you know, so I think a lot about, you know, what gender roles mean within a marriage and, you know, what, what yoking yourself to a person for life means, you know, that, that give and take that's every single day of being with another fellow human. Yeah. You alluded to earlier, the, the kind of challenge when adapting your own work um, in like replicating the interiority that you're you're able to use in a novel by having like the author's voice but like replicating that into screenplay format where everything is uh you don't have that interiority anymore everything is exterior you just got the camera how did you crack that and, and what were some of the other challenges that you had when when you started going down that path of adapting gone girl of adapting sharp objects it was tricky it was very tricky because both those books rely on narrators. They're both first person and you're getting their emotions and you're able to, you know, be in their head and what they're thinking. And you lose that bit when you transfer it over to a film. I think partly it was helpful to me to have been just such a film buff the my whole life and truly understanding that a, a perfect adaptation of a book that's like absolutely loyal to the book. Those usually aren't the best movies, actually. Those, you know, if you're down to every single detail, you, I just always think, well, why would 
why did I go see that? Like, I just read that, like, it's so much like the book. So to me, I knew first and foremost, if you get the character feeling correct, like, like the book is, and if you have the tone correct, you can go to, to different places. I mean, we, I've never changed too much of the plot, but it gives you a little bit of freedom. And so what I did was, especially with Gone Girl, because I was writing that while I was still touring for the book. And so I had seen this book so many times. I'd seen it like in every <laughs> single edit. I wrote it for me two years to write it. And it was, I was so just, I couldn't deal with the book. I just couldn't um, look at it. And I, I listened to it on audio and that really helped tweak my brain in just the right way to listen, to listen to it that way. It got me out of my, out of my head a little bit and uh, had a different approach. And I just took, I took notes. I knew it was obviously knew the story really well. I took notes on what I thought would be absolutely key scenes that had to be in there. Wrote down some of the dialogue that I really liked and closed the book until I had written that first draft. And I, cause I did not want to be going back and forward to it. Like it was some sort of Bible I was translating. Yeah. You, you needed that distance by the sounds of things then. So yeah, as you moved into that next stage of your career, where simultaneous to your work as a novelist, you were all of a sudden exploring film and TV as well. What were you learning about the possibilities of film as a medium, as opposed to working on a novel? I, th I think I ask because one of the big realizations I had watching the movie adaptation of Gone Girl, having read and loved the book prior to, to Fincher doing his adaptation, was, you know, there's a certain baggage that we bring as an audience around the movie stars that we're watching inhabit the characters. Like the, the casting of Ben Affleck in that film, for example, is really clever. Fincher has talked about taking the public perception of Ben and kind of weaponizing it in the movie, letting it contribute to the storytelling. The same goes for Neil Patrick Harris, who at the time most people associated with his character from How I Met Your Mother. Fincher is, he's such a master like that in terms of kind of harnessing all the different components of the viewing experience to help tell a story. For you, ahead of moving into, you know, becoming a showrunner and doing your own thing in, in film and TV, how great an educational experience was it working with him and seeing the ways that, yeah, he uses casting as a form of storytelling, color as a form of storytelling, even sound, all those different elements? I mean, gosh, I've learned so much from him. He's just been such a great, wonderful mentor and to get to get your first screenplay done by David Fincher is a very <laughs> special thing. And I'm always thankful for it. I think a lot of it, you know, is that, you know, details do matter. So when I was doing Utopia for Amazon and I was the showrunner and I was this wrote all the scripts and it was really my baby. And there was the sudden openness of realizing I don't have to tell the story just through this character. Like I, the what's in the room, you know, the art direction, the knickknacks they have up, the, you know, everything can kind of go into who this person is. And you don't even 
it's down to small things. Like, um, I, I wanted like Cusack's office, you know, who is this guy who's trying to crack a, a, a vaccine basically, and has all sorts of different, um, side interests and secrets and everything. So I had a, a bowl of keys that I wanted like big antique keys that are sitting between him and as he talks to someone and you can barely see them, but they, it was, it was the type of thing where if, if anyone wants to access that on a second level, you, you'll see a zillion little hidden stories in there in the, in the background. And, you know, it's, it's that idea of um, letting things tell the story. That's not just a person saying like, well, I'm a bit of a neat Nick, you know, or like, well, you know, it's like, you can tell that you don't have to do, you, you don't have to depend so much on that. As far as casting, dang, that, I don't think anyone's better at casting than he is. And he'll take big risks like Neil Patrick Harris. I love Neil Patrick Harris, but I would not have thought of him <laughs> for that role. I would not have thought of him for that role. Ben Ben was just from the very beginning because um, it it was such an interplay between him being captured in this media persona and having to be so aware of it all the time. It's just got to be exhausting. Um, and, but, you know, so I've come to love casting and to me, it's so much fun. I have such respect. I, re- I have such respect for actors, even more so now that I've done film. Um, I love the process. I love working with them. Um, I'm, and I'm constantly like casting my next <laughs> project <laughs> in my head. <laughs> well, before I ask you about your next projects, Gillian, um, I, I am curious, like, You've described uh, beginning this journey, well, from, I have, my, my maths are maybe a little bit shaky, but from, <laughs> you, you've described in the past kind of writing sharp objects uh, in New Zealand, covering the making of Lord of the Rings and being on set on the Jackass movie, which by my <laughs> calculations puts it at, at, at around the year 2000, roughly, maybe 2001. Okay. So it's been a long journey to this point. Um as we begin to wrap up this conversation, I wanted to ask if there's anything you've learned that you wish you knew then when you were embarking upon this journey, anything that uh, has really helped unlock your writing that you wish you could go back in time and tell, and tell that yeah. 2001 version of yourself about. I, I wish I had known and respected a little bit more um, that writing is sometimes miserable. Like it's sometimes an absolute misery. I have a friend who said, um, like, he's like, uh, he said, like, there is nothing worse that can happen to you in the entire world than being in the middle of writing a book. <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, I wish I'd taken a cue of that because, you know, sometimes it really is it's a slog and you write a hundred pages in the wrong direction. And, you know, you realize it doesn't work. It's the you know, same thing for screenplays. Uh, like if you um, read an early draft of widows uh, that I did with Steve McQueen, that is there are major characters who turn into completely minor characters that have two lines that I built the you know, entire framework around that did, didn't work. And they're, you know, and, and you just have to, to learn not to try to make things work that don't work just because you've written them and just because they're good. If they don't work, they don't work. 
So what's the thing that makes it worth the misery then, Gillian? Where's the moment of catharsis or release at the end that makes that makes all that that misery worthwhile? Uh, yeah, I shouldn't I shouldn't uh, make it sound like feeling too sorry for myself. I get to write <laughs> for a living, so that's the greatest thing in the world. It's I mean, for me the the favorite moment is when a character really does kind of start taking on their own destiny and like going to strange places and um, suddenly or like you realize that the person you thought was the murderer isn't actually the murderer, like in sharp objects, you know, like going, Oh, I, I wrote this entire thing and it's incorrect, but that's okay. Cause that was part of me figuring out what I was trying to do. And that's cool. And I, I love that part. And I just love for every miserable day where you just want to throw your laptop out a window and then set it on fire and then smash it <laughs> pieces and then ritualistically distribute it among all the trash cans in the city. So you never see it again. <laughs> you have those moments where you're like, I was on fire today. Like this was, I like killed it today. This, you know, I really look back and I'm still enjoying it. And those are the moments where you you just think, you know, I'm doing. I, it's okay. This is going to be okay because I still can. I still can do it. I, I, <laughs> I, I still can get through it. Is there anything you can share about um, what you've got coming up, Gillian? Like, I'm aware there's a new novel you've been hard at work on. Is is there anything there you is. can share on that? There is. I've been. Um, I, I I always hate to say when it's going to be done because it's not done yet, but it's in good shape, and so I'm feeling really good about that. And then. You know, it's been so quiet here at the WGA on strike. So things are getting back um, going up. So I should have should have some fun stuff coming up uh, in the near future. I hope it'd be my my ideal would be able to just go back and forth, you know, write, take a year, write a novel, go back and write because there's they are very different. But I love I love the quiet introverted nature of just being alone and you have absolute control and you're not worried about your budget or losing a cast member or any of these things that you have to worry about. But I do love the collaboration of the, of making a movie or making a TV show. It's just kind of joyous to walk in and see so many people who are so good at their jobs, you know, the, the props people, the lighting people, the, you know, um, art directors and and thinking, you know, like there's so many hugely talented people in the world and I get to work with them, which is really, really cool. Yeah. And and this being your first novel since you made that move into film and TV, have, have you found yourself approaching it from, from a different mindset at all? Are you thinking about the adaptation as you write the, the piece of fiction? How, how does it work? I will tell you what, and that is... I, I do sometimes think about an ad- the adaptation and I then immediately get it as much out of my brain as possible because that's how you write a really bad novel, you know, like, and, <laughs> and we had people, even when, even when Gone Girl was number one for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks, we did, we, no one wanted to touch it as a film because they were like, that's too hard. It's not adaptable. We kept hearing that. It's not adaptable. It's not adaptable. So I just need to remember most things are adaptable if you, if you are willing, (laughs) but to first and foremost, write a good book, you know, write the book that you want to write. And, and also to get off my shoulders, the whole Greek chorus that's there all the time, which is, 
is it too much like Gone Girl? Is it not enough <laughs> like Gone Girl? Wait, is it too much like Gone Girl? And just like, just do what I've always done, which is hunker down and write a book that I would read. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm so looking forward to it, Gillian. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'm now kind of craving a warm glass of train wine. You put me in the mood for it. <laughs> in a box. It has to be from, straight from the box. Oh, but of course, only the classiest <laughs> for me. Um, thank you so much for doing this, Gillian. We really do appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Nice to meet you. You've been listening to Scripts Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>